Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 289th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and I have very mixed feelings about this one. My guest is David Crosby, the legendary singer-songwriter who has twice been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. First, in 1991, for his work with the band The Birds from 1964 through 1967, and then in 1997, for his work with the band Crosby, Stills, and Nash, which was sporadically Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, from 1968 through, well, I guess we'll see. I was so excited to have Crosby on the podcast. The Fix called him, quote, one of the best singers that America has produced in the 20th century, close quote. The New York Times said that the Birds were, quote, along with the Beach Boys, the first American band to seriously challenge the primacy of the Beatles, close quote. And Music Connection described Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young as, quote, the Beatles with an American twang, close quote, adding that they, quote, brought Manchester to Monterey, close quote. In short, David Crosby is a musical genius. Now 77, he is also the subject of a terrific new documentary feature called David Crosby, Remember My Name, which was directed by A.J. Eden and produced by Cameron Crowe, and which Sony Classics acquired at the Sundance Film Festival back in January and released in theaters today, Friday, July 19th. I caught it back in the spring at the Boulder International Film Festival, and like Rolling Stone critic Peter Travers, who called it, quote, one of the best rock docs of all time, close quote, I thought it powerfully captures what makes Crosby so great and so difficult. He was, after all, essentially kicked out of both of his bands by his fellow bandmates for being, in his own words, an asshole. This interview was recorded at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter today at 4.30 p.m. It was supposed to start at 4 p.m., but I was asked to push it back so that Crosby, who is not in great health and had been promoting the doc for much of the day, could have some time to eat. I, of course, happily agreed. A little before 4.30, I met him and one of the film's publicists outside of our offices when they arrived. I escorted them up to our podcast studio, and there were nothing but good vibes at that point and as the podcast got going. As always, I had made sure ahead of time that the publicist with whom I set up the interview gave the interview subject advance notice that every episode of this podcast is sort of a career overview. They assure me that they did so. As you'll hear, I reiterated that as we sat down to begin recording, because I get that it's particularly a bit strange to rehash someone's personal and professional milestones in promotion of a documentary that rehashes their personal and professional milestones. But I was upfront about what this was, Crosby agreed to participate, and I sincerely believe that I was nothing but respectful throughout our time together. To make sure you get the full picture of how this all went down, we have not edited out awkward pauses or confrontations, only uhs and ums and the like. It takes a little while, but you'll hear that Crosby didn't like going through the major moments of his life, which I had researched immensely and was trying to tee up for him. You'll hear that he wanted to get to the documentary, and we would have, but we go chronologically on this podcast, and we're only halfway through our agreed-upon time together when things really blew up. You'll hear that he was abrasive and rude at multiple points, so I offered to stop and really bit my tongue a few times, but at a certain point, I was no longer willing to be insulted, and so I ended things. Anyway, take a listen and decide for yourself. Mr. Crosby, thank you so much for doing this. It's an honor to have you on the podcast. I have seen this movie, as I mentioned to you, the the documentary about your life. David Crosby, remember my name? I loved it. I know a lot of people are loving it. I just want to say to you, because I know that, you know, for people that have seen the documentary— 
and you as well. We're gonna some of these questions are gonna sound redundant, but for the, it's really for the people who haven't yet to sort of whet their appetite. So I hope you'll indulge me if we go over anything some. Anything you want. Thank you. I'm feeling so good about it. You can ask me anything. Thank you. Well, we always begin with on this podcast with just some basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born right here, Los Angeles, California. Yeah. My dad was a cinematographer. Yes, a great one. He, a great one. A very talented man at his job. He won one of the first Academy Awards they gave out for a silent movie called Taboo, which is still highly regarded. He won a Golden Globe for High Noon, which is probably his best-known work. I was raised in Westwood. Mm -hmm. I went to UES Mm -hmm. at at UCLA. Mm -hmm. We moved out when I got to about fifth grade to Santa Barbara, and I was raised there from then on. And... How far did you go with your education? First year college. I guess even up to that point, I've read and seen in the film and whatever. You you were a fiery kid, right? You. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to put it, yeah. I used to get in trouble a lot, yeah. I was, you know, not mean or anything, but I was, a you know, an imp. <laughs> I, I had a sense of humor that was problematical, and I certainly did not handle authority well at all. When did you start committing petty crimes? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't know. Probably I stole a sugar cube, you know, when I was about five or something. Who knows? I really have no idea. But it graduated to, you actually, there were some actual... Crimes? Crimes. Yeah, when I was, uh, about the time I was going, I'd gotten out of high school and I I was going... I think that in, during that first year, yeah. I did some buddies and, uh, and I did hit a couple of houses just uh, being silly, <laughs> but mostly I mean, stealing the liquor. That's where we were <laughs> I was going to say because we I mean liquor. you didn't. If you were to describe your upbringing, what would you say? Middle oh, class, good. upper My middle class, were nice people. No, but I mean like just financially, you were well to do, right? Or no. the family? No, 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 no. We had a rich uncle. That's yeah. why I went to the good school. Okay. Yeah. Okay. When did it become apparent that you were musically gifted? They tell me that I started singing harmony. We used to sing. Yeah. It's kind of an odd thing. When, when TV showed up, okay, in the 50s, people who made movies thought it was the enemy. Yes. They were either afraid that no longer would people come to theaters, yes. right? So it was kind of the enemy. Nobody had yet figured out that they could put movies on TV. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> Duh. Right. But they hadn't figured it out yet. So they were kind of the enemy. So we didn't have a TV. Mm-hmm. Okay. Long after everybody else got them, we didn't. We were movie people. Because, yeah, your father was right? so adamant. Yeah. We sang songs. We had the Fireside Book of Folk songs. My brother played guitar. My dad played a little mandolin. My mom sang. My mom was really good. Mm. She had a good voice. And uh, we sang songs. And uh, they tell me I started singing harmony when I was about six. Just let's say there's a musically illiterate person out there, only because this is a term that's going to come up throughout your whole career. When you say sang harmony, what does harmony mean? Uh, If this is a melody line right here, up here and up here and up here are other notes that go along with it. Those are harmony. (laughs) And so when did you yourself decide to try to do something with the music. I know you were starting out like a lot of, like most aspiring singers in coffee houses and bars and stuff, but like, was that because you thought this could be a, a profession? Didn't really, hadn't, hadn't thought it out that far. Yeah. 
the minute I tried it, I loved it I- immediately, right away. And I worked in a coffee house as a busboy and a dishwasher uh-huh. because they would let me sing harmony with the guy who was being paid to sing. And that was a thrill for me. I loved it immediately. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, I had thought, you know, that I was probably going to want to try to do something. My dad was in movies. The movie's pretty glamorous, uh-huh. you know. Maybe I could be an actor. Uh-huh. But in the minute I sang, it was just it. Did you know anyone directly who made a living as a singer? You not then, no. Not then? No, uh, no, no. So how do you form a game plan about how to make that happen? Well, back then, it was folk era, right? This is pre-rock and roll. Uh, and it was customary for you to like go on the road as a folky and find a way to make a living, you know, playing in little clubs, little coffee houses. There was a circuit of them all over the country, and uh, they paid very little, but they did pay. Was it sort of and past the hat? There was a lot of that, yeah. particularly in New York. Those are called basket houses. Okay. And, yeah, there was a lot of that. When I got to New York, that's how I, that's how I lived, mm-hmm. passing a basket afterwards. But uh, there was a... You know, you could do it. I mean, it certainly wasn't, you know, high ticket. When I moved from New York down to Miami, Florida, it was me in a cardboard box full of shirts and one guitar. And we rode the Greyhound. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so you start in Santa Barbara. You say, I've got to hit the road and try the coffeehouse circuit. You wind up in New York, then then Miami. When did things start to actually gain traction in terms of... Well, I, I actually started somewhere in like... Arizona, and then Colorado, and then New York, and then San Francisco, and then back to New York, and then finally down to Miami. I spent a long time in San Francisco, too, in Sausalito, okay. uh, Gate 6. And okay. uh, it was a, a, probably two, three-year period as Vokey. And how did the birds come about? It's pretty easy. I walked into the Troubadour, and I heard Gene Clark and uh, Roger McGuinn, and Gene was writing these he was a gifted guy, man. He didn't know the rules. He just wrote what he felt like, and he was trying to be like the Beatles. Well, the result was a kind of a good thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was doing it, and Roger was playing. Now, Roger, man, is a gifted musician. You can like him or not like him, but, boy, he does know what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, he brought a magic to it. And I, as soon as I heard it, I wanted to sing with it. So I started singing along with him. But how did you convince them that... They well, I didn't have to convince them. All they had to do was hear it. So they heard you and they knew. Yeah. And and so basically, we talked about what a harmony is, but harmonizing. So you now, this is what you guys were were known for. It's basically, what it, what made your harmonizing with these guys so great? Was it just the, or what makes any harmonizing? It's a, it's the combination of the voices? Well, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's the choice of the notes. Yeah. Then it's the texture of the notes and the skill of the singer. But it's the choice of the notes more than anything. And I had been exposed to a lot of really good music. I had listened to a lot of the Weavers, mm-hmm. for instance, a lot of folk music. Mm-hmm. And the Weavers did good harmony. Mm-hmm. They were good at it. I'd listened to Joan Baez. I'd listened to Josh White. I'd listened to Odetta. I'd listened to some pretty good people. Mm-hmm. And then I heard the Everly Brothers. And that rocked my world. <laughs> Good harmonies. I'd listen to a ton of classical music. Yeah. A ton. That's what my parents played mm-hmm. every Sunday, every of my life. Mm-hmm. That affects you. That's really good for you. And then my brother turned me on to late 50s 
jazz. You know, uh-huh. Jerry Mulligan, Chet Baker, Dave Brubeck, that that era. And uh, I mean, you sounds like from the documentary, you really kind of worshipped Coltrane, right? I loved the guy, man. Yeah, it's hard not to. I yeah. loved I loved Miles the same yeah. way. Miles cut one of my tunes, man. Kidding? <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's Holy yikes! Thrilling, yeah. But I, their keyboard players affected me more than they did. Yeah. You know, Bill and Bill Evans, big time. Mm-hmm. But McCoy Tyner stretched my head. It's truthfully, that's why I started retuning the guitar. Mm-hmm. Was that they played? commonly all the time mm-hmm. chords that i couldn't big dense you know tone clusters and they were delicious and i wanted them yeah and uh, you could get that in you know when you retune the guitar as soon as uh, this kid from the midwest i can if i think of his name i know the guy's name yeah. turned me onto the guinevere tuning yeah yeah as soon as i got in that tuning man i said oh my god well so before you guys before the birds how much folk rock, which is what you guys came to be labeled, how much of that was there? Who were you modeling yourselves after? The Beatles. The Beatles. Yeah. There wasn't anybody else. Yeah. Really. Uh, there were San Francisco bands starting, but we started first. And we consciously wanted to plow the same field that they had just opened up. They took folk music kind of changes and a rock and roll backbeat. And made a new kind of music, mm-hmm. and that was our our world. Because the Birds, you guys formed in '64. The Beatles hadn't been around for much before that, right? Just, just a little bit. Just enough for us to see Hard Day's Night. Yes, yes, yes. The other thing I think, with the benefit of history, I look back and I wonder: is you came along and were a pioneer of this new era of the singer-songwriter before you. You usually were one or the other, and there were all these varying factors that could, it depended on how you looked. It, it wasn't just your voice. All these different things, right? If you had come along a few years before you actually did, what would have happened to you? Would you have been a singer or a songwriter or neither, or how would it have affected your life? I think I would have gone the same route, but I think I would have... I, you know, that's a really hard one to say. It, the transition to electric was a major thing because then you know, when you get one of the when you mean you get a fender guitar in your hands you want to play rock and roll and when did that really start i'm trying to it happened as soon as we started the birds i got on a gretsch electric and i man if you had seen me standing in front of a mirror trying to figure out how to hold an electric guitar and play standing up right. you would have laughed yourself into a snit <laughs> it was hysterical i could still see myself doing it well i guess really the first album that you guys put out in 65 had the song on it that put you guys on the map, went to number one in the U.S., U.K. It was adapted from Dylan, right? Mr. He Tam- wrote it, yeah. Mr. Tambourine Man. And this was the first manifestation of what you're talking about, right? Of taking an existing form of music and putting a new twist on it, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, as McGuinn explains in the, in the documentary, yeah. it was a, a, a two-four folky kind of... Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man. And uh, McGuinn, God bless him, he took it and, you know, made that record out of it. He has a a gift for that. Mm -hmm. I don't know anybody who can do Bob's stuff better than Roger. I think he's the the champ at it. I'll tell you a story. Yeah. We were cruising along Sunset Boulevard in a, a station wagon, 1956 Ford station wagon, 
all five of us, with our gear in the back, I think, but all five of us in, in the station wagon, and we're listening to KHJ, KRLA, one of those, right? And it came on. And we were freaking out. It's the first time we'd heard it on the radio. First right? time you heard yourselves. And we pulled over, and we're like, thrilled. <laughs> and we're cheering. And <laughs> then they played it again. It's wow. the only time I ever heard a radio station play the thing twice, and wow. they did. And we were actually, we got out of the car, and we're dancing around in the street. <laughs> we could not believe it. That's amazing. We were so thrilled. When you guys now have a little traction, comes your second album in the same year. And on that one, just to give an example of one of the great songs on there, Turn, Turn, Turn. Where does that one come from? Because that's, I just, that's almost like a... Pete Seeger. Yeah. The wonderful Pete Seeger. Yeah. He took those words from the Bible. Yeah. And he wrote the music to them. And they made a wonderful song. Yeah. And Roger, again, yeah. took a folk thing that didn't sound that like that and turned it into that record. I thought up that boom, down, 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 but that's not a big deal. The the big deal was how Roger made the, the record happen. He's... He's good at it, what can I tell you? How quickly were other people trying to copy what you guys were Immediately. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Who did it the most effectively? Uh, Sonny and Cher. Yeah. Because they, what, a year or two later? Instantly. Yeah. Right away. How do you write a song with a group of people? Let's take Eight Miles High, for instance. This is March 66. You're ostensibly writing about air travel. Not really. Maybe a Duplo and Chandra in there, just a <laughs> tiny bit. Uh, how that came about was... Uh, but just was, as an example of how a group of people write a song together. You know, you, you, everybody contributes. Yeah. Uh, Gene came with the, the idea for the song and, and wrote, you know, a lot of it. Maybe most of the, of the words. Roger, I think, wrote most of the music. Or Gene, I don't know. You know, we wrote it together. And it came out like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not common. Writers generally are very turf conscious and they want the credit and they want the money and they want their publishing company to get bigger. And, you know, it's like they don't generally do it. I do it all the time. Yeah, yeah. For very good reason. The other person always thinks of something you didn't. Yeah, yeah. And it always broadens the spectrum. It always, you know, widens the palette that, that, that you're working from. And that's, it has... Nearly invariably, if you're very picky yeah. about who you do it with, yeah. and I am. Yes. But I write with, man, my son James is one of the best writers I've ever encountered. And uh, Mike Leake. Yeah. Holy yikes. And Becca Stevens, one of the most amazing writers I've ever encountered. And Michelle Willis and Michael McDonald. Right. I, mean, I write with a lot of people. Oh, for sure. But I'm very picky about who. To stick with the Eight Miles High example, you have said that that song was written when you guys were stoned. Is it easier or harder to write when you're stoned? I don't think it really goes either way. No? I think a lot of people like it because they feel comfortable when they're stoned. You know, and they're, right. they're like loose and goosey, and they're fooling around with a guitar, and, well, what do you think about this? And it's kind of easy. Yeah. I don't think it generates anything. You know, I don't think you can become a writer if you smoke a joint. Right. You know, it's, it's not <laughs> right. like that. Right. I think it's a matter of comfort. You know, and it depends on what kind of mind you have and what kind of relationship you have with whatever it is you're getting stoned on. Right. I only think that pot, you know, which is like like beer and wine, that level, <laughs> is okay to work on. Yeah. I don't do it before I do a concert. 
No? Why no, is that? I think I, I think I do a better job if I bring all the brain cells that are still holding hands <laughs> uh, to the party. Well, uh, you know, because it's a delicate balance, man, taking people on a ride in a concert. You work in very small nuances, and you and you, it's an amorphous thing out there in between you and them that you're trying to shape. It's very intuitive yeah. and very tricky and uh so i like to bring everything i got you know i, I do like afterwards i definitely get loaded <laughs> <laughs> well let's talk about three years after the birds formed the birds as they were originally incarnated ended and i want to ask you 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 have said in another interview i i read a lot of them to prep one of them quote after that eight miles high, younger than yesterday period, there was no significant advance that I know of. There was also no birds after that that I know of. And it's a provincial attitude, but as far as I'm concerned, there were only five birds ever, period, close quote. Meaning what essentially happened in 1967 is they literally come to you, the other guys, in Porsches and tell you you're out. And I just wonder if you are certain why that came about. I mean, one of the theories was that they didn't like triad. triad. Yeah, I don't think that was a big deal. I think it was partly. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, it's a uh, risque. Yeah. You know, if you're very straight. The song uh, about three songs. It would, it would yeah. seem, you know, like uh, that would be risque to you. Uh, I, I think, you know, I was excessive in all kinds of directions. I was getting very high. I was also very political mm -hmm. and very convinced that the JFK assassination was uh, not anything like what they told us it was, and I'm still quite sure that's the case. And you said this at the Monterey. Yeah, that pop wasn't festival. a real popular move. No. <laughs> uh -uh. <laughs> Look, the, here's the here's how they felt. I, mean, I said this in the documentary. They, yeah. they wanted to be a successful band. Mm -hmm. You know, we had all come out of not not having much money, and and it was we needed to make a living. Yeah. And we were trying to be a success. And uh, that whole political thing, just that was like, it, it certainly didn't please Roger. Yeah. And, you know, he's got a right to feel how he feels. I, I think that's quite a handful, anyway, <laughs> you know, besides that. Anyway. I wondered if something else I read and one thing was correct, which was that even before you guys broke up, you were occasionally, were you in any way sort of separately performing with Buffalo Springfield? Yeah. So did that cause jealousy, do you think, with... Probably. Yeah. Because they... So just to remind people, because I needed this reminder, Buffalo Springfield was only around from like 66 to 68 or something. Mm -hmm. Very short period of time. Sort of like the birds in their original incarnation. It's kind of what happens if you get Neil in the band. <laughs> if you get Neil, yeah. Well, <laughs> so so in this case, you, that was your introduction to Stephen. I met Stephen. You know, uh, Chris Hillman said, "Hey, listen, you got to hear this band." Took me down to Whiskey, and we heard uh, Springfield, and I was very taken with them. I thought they were their writing was much better than normal bands, you know, and because Stephen and, and Neil were writing, and yeah. they're both really good, and I. I loved the two the two lead guitars playing completely different styles. You know, I, I liked the whole thing. I mm -hmm. liked him a lot. I was very taken with Steven. He's a cocky young guy, man. He played his ass off. Mm -hmm. He had, he man, the guy had authority on on lead guitar. He just his time was so good, and his Latin feel was so good, and his blues feel was so good. He's good. He's still good. Mm -hmm. 
And I was very taken with him. I, you know, I was, came from a band where we didn't do any blues at all, period. There was none of that at all. Roger didn't go there. That wasn't where Roger was built from. But you wanted to. Of course I wanted mm-hmm. to. How could you not? Right, right, you know? Right. By then, rock and roll was rock and roll. Right. And you, that was where I wanted to go. And Stephen and I liked each other. I liked his writing. You know, he was writing pretty good songs, and, and he liked mine. And uh, that was kind of a natural thing. It, it, Neil had split, and he needed another guy to do Monterey, so I filled in. And basically, I think just to be clear to for listeners— it's not like the Birds or Buffalo Springfield broke up because there was now going to be Crosby, Stills, and Nash. There was this gap there. No, they were already coming apart, it seems. Yes. you got to remember, Neil had left. Right, and that was bad for them. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but, but what we just chronologically, it's important, really important to note that it was in that gap between the end of the Birds and the beginning of Crosby, Stills, and Nash that you went to Florida, right? And this is where you have your first encounter with Joni Mitchell, which we hear about in the film and all that. You have been very em- emphatic that you feel that of the people from that came up with you, she was the most talented. Was that apparent from that first time you saw her in Coconut Grove? From the first 15 seconds. I think in 100 years, they'll look back and they'll say, okay, she and Bob were the two best poets. And she was 10 times the musician that Bob was. And that's it. That's how it is. You know, I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm a Dylan fan, man. I can sing you a lot of Dylan songs. Mm-hmm. But Joni was as spectacularly advanced a musician as the both of them were as wordsmiths. Joni, better than me, I'll tell you that. Better than anybody I know. Better than anybody I've ever heard. So I think, yeah, I think she's unquestionably the best singer-songwriter, the top end of singer-songwriter, head and shoulders above everybody, above both of the Pauls, above Randy Newman, above uh, anybody, man, uh, uh, Donald Fagan, any any of my writer people that I love, you know, James Taylor, people I really worship. Mm -hmm. She's better. And so there were multiple reasons why you wanted to bring her back to L.A., right, where she, or to bring her to L.A., where you were now, were you already living in Laurel Canyon or not Multiple yet? reasons. Are we getting pornographic? Well, I mean, <laughs> no, just that there, you were romantically interested. <laughs> that started in Florida, right? Yes. And then also you want to produce her first album. I offered to, yeah. And so she comes back. And what I just wondered, though, is when you guys get back to L.A., were you already now living in Laurel Canyon or it was with her that you that you guys moved to Laurel Canyon? I have to ask, are we going to go through my entire history week by week? No, 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 but just well, some of That's kind of what we're doing here. Okay, well, what would you what would you like to do? I'd prefer to talk about the last four records in a row that I just made. Well, we, I mean, we have an hour. We're going to okay, get to... Okay, good, we'll right. get to, as long yeah, as, all right, yeah. but... Definitely, we're, no. We're creeping along here. Okay, uh, I had already been living in Laurel, yeah. And why had you chosen... I, I mean, now everyone that's sort of retroactively knows what that's about, but at the time, was it already known as a kind of artist colony or not? No, hell no. We were yeah. trying to get above the smog. <laughs> I was the first one to move up there, and it was because I had been born in L.A., Yeah, and I knew how bad the smog was. I wasn't going to live down in the valley, <laughs> and I sure wasn't going to live downtown, Right, and I couldn't afford to live in Beverly Hills, right. you know, so, the, you know, you go up... A, 
you go up the hills and there's a smog line. Right. And if you get up high enough, you're out of the smog. Right. And that's where we went. How is it possible that there are such differing recollections of how the three guys first got together? Oh, God. What's that? This is look. You're you're asking me to do my entire history in the music business week by week here. I'm trying to be patient, but well, I mean, what is this you, really what we're doing? I don't understand what what did you think we were going to do? Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, if you don't want to do it, we don't have to do it. I I just I mean, w- I didn't know that's what this was. Uh, yeah, we go. It's a. Inter- I, mean, I wrote this down in books, man. You could read it. I I have read it. Then why are we doing it? Because our listeners haven't read it, and this is going to make them go see the documentary. We haven't talked about the documentary, man. We're going through it's my history week by week, and we are very near the beginning. <laughs> if you uh, don't I, to... I'm just saying this isn't about the documentary, which I'd love to talk about. Well, You're asking me it's... stuff that everybody knows that yeah. it is historically – I blatantly all over the map. I think you're, you are, the reason I'm asking is that not everyone knows it, so we're going to get new people that want to go. But if you don't want to do it, we don't have to do it. We can stop right now. I don't, I'm not trying to make it unpleasant. It's I, not unpleasant. It's just kind of dumb. But you're, Go ahead. No, but, I, I, but, you know, I can do this all day. It's just boring. I, I, don't, and it's, I, I well, think it's dumb. I think everybody already knows all this shit. The, okay, but I can tell you, like, people in their 30s and their 20s who listen to this don't. Okay, let's go ahead. I mean, I, I, I have a bunch of questions like this. Go you ahead. Yeah? All right. I, I think we... I don't know. I, what is the actual story of how you guys first came together as a band? I heard Still Sing, yep. and I heard his songs, and I was very drawn to him. Yep. The guy was immensely talented. Cass introduced me to, to this guy, this English guy, and I didn't, had no idea who he was. Didn't know what band he was in, didn't know what he sang, didn't know anything about him. But after I met him, then she turned me on to who that was. So I went when they came to the Whiskey of Gogo, which is odd that this all happened at the Whiskey. I never really put that together. When the Hollies played the whiskey, I went and listened, and the guy was an incredible harmony singer, maybe the best I'd ever heard. And um, time passes, and I start, I start singing with, with Stephen because he's got these songs, and they're good. They're really good. Helplessly Hoping, you hear a song like that good, and you want to sing on it. It's fun. And we're singing when we were at Joni's house in Laurel Canyon, and he, Stephen and I sang, uh, In the Morning When You Rise, that song. And Nash was there, and he put the top part on. He's, we did it. We sang it. He said, that's fantastic. Would you sing it again? And we sang it again. He said, one more time. And we looked at each other and went, what? So we sang it the third time. He put the top part on. And at that point, we knew exactly what we were going to be doing for the next few years. There wasn't any question. What were the greatest strengths that you each brought to the table were there was it overlapping or did you each have very distinct things in your in your view that you brought to the band 
writing. For everybody or for... Everybody. Yeah. yeah. Everybody's a good writer. Harmony, Nash and I, we're, we are two of the best harmony singers, and together we're uh, astounding. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not friends right now, but there's only been ever a few people that sang like that together. The Everleys. Yeah. Indigo Girls. Real good. Handful of other people. Beach Boys. Yeah. You know, it's not many people that get a blend. And we did right away. And I think just to illustrate the kind of dispersal of of what you each were doing, even just from that first album released in the summer of 69, self, you know, named after the band, Marrakesh Express was written by Graham, Sweet Judy Blue Eyes by Stephen, and Guinevere by you. And each, it feels like, it seems like we're quite personal would you talk amongst each other always about the motivations for something like this or would it just be understood there was a reason a personal reason for writing a song no we knew what what the songs were about you know uh, from each other because we were song guys uh the important information is in how different they were yeah and how they juxtaposed against each other in a record and and that was wonderful We, we were making that record we knew we knew we were doing some of the best work of our lives right then. We had no idea whether it would be a success or not. We didn't know that it would go to the levels that it went to. But the music was, man, we invited every friend we had over all the time. We, we Cass would come down often, Joni, a lot of people. So that period of just a few months in, in 69, now 50 years ago, to have such highs and such lows to have that first album come out to have meanwhile just up you know what less than a mile away the manson stuff happening with at a house that i think you knew about and then to have this personal tragedy in your own life with your girlfriend do you believe that you were a different person after that whole back to back to back massive highs and massive lows uh, the other things weren't significant next to Christine. Yeah. That's, uh, that's a tough one. I don't know if you ever had anybody uh, go that you loved, but it's hard. Mm-hmm. And did things like drugs become more of a problem after that as a way yeah. of dealing uh, with Yeah. Heroin's a painkiller. Yeah. And that's where the problem was, a lot of pain. Yeah. It doesn't work, of course. Right. It doesn't work at all just makes things worse right and uh led to my uh, eventual downfall but i'm one of the few lucky people that managed to get out the other end i to this day am baffled as to why i made it and and so many of my friends did not well that's one of the most powerful moments in the documentary i think when cameron crow asks you what you know why are you still here and and i think <laughs> many of the reviews and articles have noted it just seems like there's no rational, right? No rational reason why that would be. Not that I know of. Yeah. So you had known Neil from the Buffalo Springfield kind of dabbling, but was I had heard that you guys were looking at Steve Winwood, a whole bunch of people to possibly join. Is that not true, or how did it end up being Neil? I don't think it would have been Winwood. No. Uh, there were other people that were friends of ours that we thought about, John Sebastian. Yeah. We didn't need another person. We were just curious. When we made the record, we kind of realized we sort of did need somebody because Stephen played keyboard and guitar. 
And when Stephen had to move the keyboard, who was going to play the guitar? Uh Stephen knew what Neil was. That's why he partnered up with him the first time. We didn't. But once I heard Neil's songs that he was writing, when any question in my mind, I wanted to be in a band with that guy. And he was writing wonderful songs, a much higher level than most people around him. You know, he hadn't really developed yet into the, the lead guitar player that he is now, the outrageous lead guitar player that he is now, who doesn't sound like any other human being on the planet. But he did have those songs, and, and to me, songs are the jacks are better. They're, they're the, the real meat of the matter. You know, I, you can dress it up any way you want. It still has to start with a song and, uh, and a good one. I mean, he's a really good writer when he wants to be. Well, to talk about a beautifully written song, second album, just a year later, included Our House. And what I wanted to ask you about that was, here's something where you had been romantically involved with Joni Mitchell, then you moved on. But when you now have a song, first of all, where Graham is now involved with her, and then there's a song about that, I wondered, was it tough to sing about her now being with somebody else, or were you just already moved on to... Other, you know, obviously you'd had your So own. you didn't watch the documentary? Of course I watched the documentary, but... Okay, well, you need to go back and watch it again. I, I'm teeing up a question for you. Graham was unquestionably the best person for Joni. Yep. And it was a good match, and I was quite happy about it. Yeah. And you recognize that song immediately was a special one. You're kind of a dumb guy, you know that? Well, I can see why some of these other guys have a problem with you. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. But don't come here and insult me. Hey, you're an asshole, man. You fucking go through a fucking kindergarten shit here. Yeah? You got somebody in front of you who can answer stuff that's serious. And we could have talked about all kinds of serious shit. And you're going through fucking infantile crap that anybody could have got out of a fucking book. Yeah. Okay, well, good. You're a dipshit. Bye. Take care. An idiot. Get out of here. Idiot. I you guys going through the fucking my life week by week, like it's a history lesson. I'm going to meet Joni Mitchell. What was that like? He's a fucking idiot. You didn't talk about the documentary one fucking bit. I've been in there a half hour. And so then you meet Graham. What was it like when Graham went with Joni? Was that like bad for you? He's a fucking idiot. Yeah, you should get me out. You should filter people better than that fucking dumb shit. Well, there you have it, folks. It took until our 289th episode, but we finally had an interview go off the rails. I wish nothing but the best for the documentary, David Crosby, Remember My Name. It's very good, and I know I certainly will. Until next time, I'm Scott Feinberg, and this has been Awards Chatter. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, 
Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in.